in your, your Bibles to uh, Titus. Titus chapter 1. We've been working our way through this little epistle of Paul. And uh, we've been looking at different aspects of, of what God would have us to uh, come to understand concerning the, the leadership of the church, his church. And uh, I doubt probably that there has ever been a time in history where the enemy somehow has not um, attacked or been assaulting uh, the Word of God. It's happened throughout the ages. Um, during the Middle Ages, Many, if not most, of the priests, even in the Catholic Church, were ignorant of the basic teachings of the Bible. Because the Bible wasn't translated into the common language of the day, only the priests could read it in Latin. Remember those days, sitting in in the Catholic Church and the priest up there reciting things in Latin? I do. Um, They were the only ones that could read the word, they're the only ones that um, could present it to the congregation, but unfortunately few of them did. Um, the Reformation was really, at its heart, a revival to the Word of God. Uh, Luther translated the Bible into German, and so that, because of that, common people could read it, and uh, both he and Calvin preached what they are known as expository sermons from God's Word, explaining and applying the Bible to everyday lives, making the planning of the, the Scripture, uh, the meaning of Scripture plain. And even though the, the Reformation spread throughout England and by the mid-15th or 16th century, uh, things were once again in a very bad way. Uh, J.I. Packard says many churches had not had a sermon preached in them for years. Uh, And in that spiritual uh, wasteland, God raised up the Puritans. And the Puritans believed that they, their role as pastors and elders in the church Their role was to be responsible for rebuking heresy, for defending truth, lest their flocks be misled and enfeebled or, at worst, that biblical, uh, uh, if not worse, biblical truth would somehow help them, nourish them. And the the Puritans were, above all else, uh, a biblical movement. They were all about the Bible. To the Puritan, the Bible was truth, and it was the most precious possession the world affords. How many of our Bibles do we have on our shelves? Probably most of us have two, three, maybe more. How many times do we crack it open every week? Hopefully not just on Sundays. Well, over the years, I believe that the Bible has been, the Word of God has been attacked by the enemy in several ways, um, 
but two are rather obvious. Back in the 1970s and in the early 80s, there was a, a literal attack on the inerrancy of Scripture. Some of you remember that time. <clears throat> and there was um, a guy by the name of Harold Linzel who wrote, remember his book, The Battle for the Bible? And he began to expose the erosion of trust and the absolute accuracy of the Bible. And as a result of that, there was raised up an international council on biblical uh, inerrancy. And uh, they published a a statement on inerrancy during that time that clearly spelled out that they affirmed the the truth of Scripture. And even more recently, in our our recent times, there has been attacks against the Word of God. Um, Even through the modern-day seeker church movement. Uh, the seeker movement basically is, is based, you might say, on a worthy goal to reach the lost, to reach the unchurched, to bring them to faith in Christ. But the unfortunate thing is at the heart of their strategy is redesigning the church, redesigning the, the Sunday morning worship service so that it primarily targets unbelievers. Hems are replaced with Upbeat, contemporary songs, often used drama or plays. Services are kept short, about an hour long. Believers are discouraged from bringing their Bibles to church because it might make the unbelievers feel comfortable, so everything's put up on PowerPoint. Sermons are are short and always basically topical, uh, self-need, self-help kind of stuff about how to succeed in life. One church growth writer stated that if you want your church to grow, you should never, ever preach on anything controversial or negative. And that seeker kind of movement was replaced more recently by the emergent movement, the emergent church. Um, They look at the seeker movement as too big, too successful, too much authority, too, too many programs. And so they go to the other extreme, and they want to emphasize building close relationships in the church, which sounds noble. But they buy into the, fall, the flawed philosophy of the postmodern era, which denies absolute truth in the moral and spiritual realm. They emphasize experience over doctrine, They emphasize tolerance and acceptance, and they look at those as virtues. And so, to them, to have a pastor or an elder stand up in a church and open up the Word of God and tell everyone what the meaning says and exhort the body to be obedient to the Scriptures is viewed as arrogant and judgmental. In that movement, doctrine is de-emphasized, When you go on the site of an emergent church, they have a doctrinal statement, but it's very general. Because it's, it's, to understand what the emergent church movement is, it's, it's basically a, a group of loose-knit association of churches that, and pastors that have decided that there is no value and there's no virtue in teaching the certainty of Scripture. 
The bottom line is the emergent church movement, what they believe is they believe that we aren't even supposed to understand precisely what the Bible says. And it's an attack on the clarity of Scripture. It's an attack and when they elevate themselves as if that was some kind of a noble thing that they're doing. One emergent leader is quoted as saying, we don't know what the Bible really means. We can't be certain. We are the true spiritual ones because we don't claim to know what it means. It has overtones of spiritual pride, a false kind of spiritual pride that they call humility. They say we're too humble to say that we know what the Bible means. And what is a movement like that doing? It's denying the clarity of Scripture. It denies that when we open up our Bibles, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that He can allow us to understand the meaning of the Scripture. And so they fall into the same trap. They just give people what they want. And usually, it's kind of a thing that culture defines so they want to change with culture they're all about what what the culture's into the latest trend the latest fad and they don't want to over stress theology in any way but rather they allow the community of faith to get together and discuss it and come up with whatever they want it to mean So instead of having a sermon, you might have a group of people come together and someone shares a psalm, someone shares a poem, someone shares a song or maybe brings a picture or reads a scripture or maybe they dance or they show a video. What they're saying in effect is they're not into doctrine. We're not hung up on that kind of stuff. And they feel sorry for those that are. And they want us to understand that they're really experiencing Christ in that venue. And I'd venture to say that even the modern-day charismatic movement is really an assault on the authority of Scripture, if you get honest about it. Because they put their experience at least on the same level, if not usually above the revealed Scripture as far as authority goes. They claim that they're getting fresh revelation, fresh truth from God, which is outside the bounds of revealed scripture that he's given us. And they do it all while claiming to be a movement of the Holy Spirit. The thing they fail to understand, unfortunately, is that the Holy Spirit does his work through the word of God, through the scriptures, as they're revealed to us in the canon of Scripture. And he does that through a true and proper understanding, interpretation of those Scriptures. The meaning of any Scripture is the divine revelation from God. You don't need to go beyond that. If you don't get the meaning right, beloved, then you don't have any revelation. So how can you have a movement that claims to be from God... Without the proper understanding of Scripture, it's impossible. And so while they claim to be this supernatural movement of the Spirit, they deny the true interpretation of Scriptures. And they really get, in a way, sidetracked 
from the true ministry of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. I say all that to introduce our, our text this morning. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. You can follow along as I read down through 16. Speaking of elders, it says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled, unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The question is, are you willing to stand up for biblically sound theology? The role of an elder, the role of a pastor is to guard God's flock from error. And to do that, we want to look just in our opening here. Five things that elders are commanded to do. Elders must be godly men who firmly and boldly teach God's word of truth. And he gives us five requirements there in Titus. And the first one is elders must be men of biblical understanding. They must be men of biblical understanding. Every elder is called primarily to the ministry of the word. Therefore, they're gifted with a gift of teaching. 1 Timothy 3.2 says they must be able to teach. That's what sets them apart from deacons, servants in the church. 1 Timothy 5.17, it says the elders who rule well are considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now that doesn't mean that You have to get in front of people and stand behind a pulpit. You might very well feel more comfortable in a smaller group or discipling men. But the idea is that you have to have some form of biblical understanding. Every elder must be knowledgeable enough in Scripture that he could instruct a younger believer... And correct any doctrinal error when he encounters it. We have to hold fast, it says, the faithful word, trustworthy word, so that we can understand it. To understand it, you have to study it. To study it, it takes time. It's really a lifelong endeavor. 
So a man who does not have a desire to study God's word diligently and a desire to further his knowledge of the word of God clearly should not be an elder. Secondly, elders must be men of biblical conviction. Not just understanding, but biblical conviction. It says there that we should hold fast. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. John Calvin, in his commentary, he brings out the meaning of this. He says, in a pastor, there is demanded not only learning, but such zeal for pure doctrine as never to depart from it. And those strong convictions, beloved, flow out of the first quality. You have to have an understanding of Scripture to have a conviction about Scripture. The problem is we have people all over the place that don't have a a proper understanding of Scripture, and so they have convictions that are flawed. The more you study the great doctrines of the faith, the more you appreciate God's grace as he shows it to us through Christ. The more you study, the more you understand why these doctrines are essential, the doctrines of the faith. And you begin to see how the enemy subtly sneaks in and begins to introduce destructive heresies. All you have to do is look at church history. You can learn how all these errors have damaged people's lives and even their eternal destinies. You see men who have been willing to die a torturous death rather than deny these truths. All of this should strengthen our own convictions to hold firmly to the truth, even in the the face of strong pressure, pressure to compromise. We need to understand that we need to hold biblical convictions with two cautions. First of all, we need to be firm and unwavering on the essentials of the faith. We need to be firm and unwavering on the essentials of the faith. But we also need wisdom and discernment about where and when to contend for the faith. There are doctrines that, in my mind, are non-negotiable. It's not an exhaustive list here. But some of those doctrines are the the Trinitarian nature of God, the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ, his substitutionary atonement on the cross, salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, the inspiration, the authority, the veracity of Scripture, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, his ascension into heaven, His bodily second coming to judge the earth and the eternal reward of believers in heaven and also the eternal punishment of unbelievers in hell. That's not exhaustive, but those are some of the things that I'm willing to die on the mountain for. And there's people out there teaching the direct opposite of that list. For example, the more current trend is open theism. They deny the sovereign omniscience of God. I mean, when you deny the omniscience of God, when you deny the sovereignty of God, that has huge implications on how you're going to understand any truth of Scripture. 
And it's going to have implications on how God is able to fulfill his promises. Another area that causes arguments, that causes divisions within the body of Christ, is the so-called Calvinism versus Arminianism argument. Now, I'm not here to say Arminians are heretics. I wouldn't say that. But I'll tell you what. Their beliefs have major consequences with regard how they view God and how you view man as a sinner and how you understand and how we preach the gospel. Because I'll tell you what, the Arminian viewpoint on doctrine really erroneously robs God of the glory that's due his name. And I think whenever you're robbing God of his glory, that's a very serious matter. There's many historian, uh, church historians over the years and theologians that point out that when a church embraces Arminian theology, it often leads to the rise of liberal theology. Because both errors really exalt human reason above the revelation of God's word. Those things are worth contending for. Secondly, we need to contend for the truth, but we need to do it in love. We must not love controversy. We must not love the, 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 the feeling that our flesh gets of winning a debate. That's not what it's about. First and foremost, beloved, we must love God. And we must love his truth above all else. And we must love the people of God, including even those who are in error. And we need to do so Fervently, we need to do so with humility. See, false teaching is crucial because false teaching damages people. False teaching is crucial and it's cruel because it damages people. Even the Apostle Paul labors to set churches straight. He tells Titus, you need to set things in order. There's some people that are out of line. He's like a parent to his churches almost. The Apostle Paul is. I mean, if you were a parent and you only corrected your child when they committed a felony, you wouldn't be a very good parent now, would you? (laughs) You wouldn't have very good kids either. Good parents long for their children to grow up Right? And they, they do so with kindness and, 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 and courtesy, and they, and they treat them and they love them. But their desire is that they grow up into mature adults. That's what Paul's goal was. That's what Paul's desire was for the church. And so elders must have biblical understanding, they also must have biblical conviction. Thirdly, elders must be men of biblical ob- obedience, they must be men of biblical obedience. It would be sheer hypocrisy, while the Bible strongly condemns, to exhort people to follow God's word when you're not doing it yourself. Now, that doesn't mean that every elder and every pastor follows God's word perfectly. They're not saints, okay? They're fallen human beings just like you and I. So we have to be careful as a church that we don't exalt men who are in ministry or elders to a a level that they don't deserve.
But we also have to hold them to a standard which God tells us to. See, Paul exposes these false teachers in verse 16. We read it. It says, they profess to know God, but they're what? Their deeds, by their deeds, they deny him. Being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. So you have people within the church that are professing to know God, but their lives don't match up to what they're saying with their lips. John Calvin said this of pastors. He says, For it would be better if they broke their necks while mounting the pulpit than to be unwilling to be the first to walk after God and to live peaceably with their neighbors, demonstrating that they are the sheep of our own Lord Jesus Christ's flock. Now, none of us live in sinless perfection. That's impossible. But we see in verses 6 and 7, an elder must be above reproach. Shouldn't have a secret life. We shouldn't be living a double life. One, One way here on Sunday morning and then one way out when we leave these doors. Fourthly, elders should be men of biblical exhortation. They must be able, it says, to what? Exhort, right, in sound doctrine. The word sound means healthy. That's what that means. It means healthy. We get the word hygienic from it. Sound doctrine aims at and results in spiritual health. It doesn't focus, as verse 14 says, on myths. It doesn't focus on the commands of men. That would be ridiculous. It doesn't get all caught up with speculation. Well, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? You know, who cares? I don't know. Beloved, we have to come to the conclusion that, you know what, there are some truths within the Word of God that I just can't make sense of. Logically, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me that God's word says that before the foundation of the world, he chose those who would come to him. And yet in the New Testament, we're told, whosoever comes, I would know why he's cast out. Wow. It's hard to understand how we believe that the word of God is just that, the word of God. And yet people like Paul, Peter, others wrote the word of God. Mere human beings moved by the Holy Spirit. Not in a robotic, robotic fashion. They were, they were truly moved by the Spirit to write what they wrote. So we don't need to make speculations about things that we don't understand when it comes to certain doctrines. And it doesn't mean that we don't teach those doctrines just because our logic can't make sense of it. Rather, godly elders aim their teaching at building up God's people in the knowledge of God and in the practice of holy living. That's what we're called to do. Doctrine means teaching. That's what it means. It includes both doctrinal and more directly, more directly, even practical aspects of Scripture. There's some people that, you know, oh, the doctrinal things, I don't, I don't like to get into that part. You know, just give me, to, you know, the five things that I need to know to have a happy family. Or to have a happy marriage. Or to have a happy this or happy that or whatever. Everybody wants to be happy, happy, happy. You know, you let the theologians get into all that stuff. I'm not going to deal with that. 
that's over my pay grade. That's over my head. I, I can't. Just give me the practical stuff. Beloved, you can't get the practical stuff without getting the theological stuff. See, Paul's normal pattern in his epistles, if you look, look at Ephesians, perfect example. You read through the book of Ephesians when you go home, and you tell me what you find in the first three chapters. It'll blow your mind. What is it? It's theology. Pure theology. Paul's just pumping his full of theology for three chapters. And then in chapter four, he says, you know what? Now, based on what I just told you about theology, about God, the understanding of God, that's what theology is, the study of God, based on what I just told you, now here's how it applies to your life. See, we want to skip over the first three chapters and jump right into chapter four and say, okay, talk to me how I can have a happy marriage. doesn't work even in romans he thought the believers in rome needed to know romans 1 through 11 when we go through romans next year well not next year the next coming years but when we start romans next year i wish i could go through romans in one year um when we start that in in january for the first 11 chapters man it's it's just pure theology And then we finally get some practical stuff when we get into chapter 12. See, the the fact is this. The great doctrines of the Bible are immensely practical. Without them, you're basically building a Christian life with no foundation. We, We sang part of a hymn this morning. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. No other. See, that's, that's such important to understand that. We're not going to base our Christian experience on what we feel. We're not going to base our Christian experience on what we experience. We're going to base our Christian experience and the practice of it on God's eternal truth as revealed through His Word. Thank you. If you don't have theology, you're not going to have the practice. That word exhort, it can mean a couple things. It, it, it may mean either to urge, to obedience, to charge somebody, or to encourage or to comfort. It can have even the flavor of imploring someone, appealing to someone, entreating them. Paul uses that same word in the original language in 2 Timothy 4.2, where after urging Timothy to preach the word, he says, reprove, rebuke, exhort. And then he says, with what? With great patience and wisdom. See, it implies that our hearts must be in teaching. We have to know these truths. So elders have to be men of biblical understanding. They have to be men of biblical conviction, obedience, exhortation. Fifthly, elders must be men of biblical courage to confront error. They must be men of biblical courage. Calvin said this, the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away the wolves and the thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. Some people think that, well, when you come to church and you want to hear the pastor preach, well, he should always be happy and positive and and focus on the positive, you know. Uh, Your best life now, that kind of mentality, you know. A million dollar smile and just, boy, 
Happy, happy, happy in Jesus. But see, to, pe- to teach simply positive thinking is not enough. Paul says we also have to be willing to refute false teaching. Now, I'm not saying that every week I figure out how to purposely be offensive to everybody. That's not my role. But neither should I be worried about saying certain things that potentially might be offensive to some. I definitely don't want to water down the the truth of the Word of God or compromise the truth of the Word of God just because I know somebody's going to get their feelings hurt. I mean, look at the apostles' examples. In 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, 3 John. I mean, whenever they named the names of false teachers, they named the names of false teachers. They weren't shy about it. They pointed out these dangerous men. And sometimes when you talk in generalities, unfortunately, people don't get it. <laughs> they just don't get it. So sometimes you've got to point them out. You've got to call them out. Sometimes you have people in your church going out and buying books for men or women who could be very easily classified as a false teacher. So sometimes you've got to be a little more specific when you're talking about certain people. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, Paul, when he confronted the Galatian heresy, you know, he, he didn't say, well, you know, the, the, the Judaizers, they're, they're, they're good brothers and sisters, and, and, and we just kind of need to agree. Can't we just set aside a, a couple areas where we can disagree and come together on, on the, the general you know, unity of faith and point out those things that we have in common? He didn't do that. He denounced them as preaching a false gospel and pronounced them as anathema. I read online on the Christian Post an article about this man. His name is Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda. Has a picture of him there. Nice little guy. He's the leader of a cult. You know what the cult, or he was, I should say, the leader of a cult. The movement of his cult was called Growing in Grace. Wow, pretty good name. Sounds pretty harmless. Actually sounds biblical. The article says this, the ex-wife of Jose, who claimed, Jose claimed, to be Jesus Christ... (laughs) And the founder of a Florida-based growing in grace cult movement confirmed his death via YouTube last week. This is dated April 19, 2013. However, Mr. Miranda's organization assured the media that he is still alive because they believe Miranda is immortal. Miranda claimed to be Jesus Christ and the Antichrist. <laughs> yeah. Telling his followers to get 666 tattooed on their hands at one point as a sign that they believed in him. 
Josefina Torres, who was married to Miranda for seven years, made the video with the purpose, listen, to expose the lies behind her ex-husband's business, in quotes, and called out his church leaders who have made a profit from naive followers. She said this, and I quote, I am confirming his death, and I'm the only one making it publicly known because I don't want to be part of the lies that have betrayed people for so long. I can't continue people's faith, beliefs, and feelings to be hurt any longer. Miranda allegedly died from liver cirrhosis at Sugarland Texas Hospital on August 8th. And Torres said she was informed of his death through former members of his church who have family members that remain a part of his movement. These people were told about his death, but they don't want to publicly show their face. But this is the purpose of my life, to uncover the lies of what religion is and this business of trafficking people's feelings. Despite Torres' revealed confession, listen to this, Miranda's church rejected the news of his death. And one leader addressed the international media. This guy's got an international ministry. I mean, incredible. During a recent gathering to inform the public that Miranda is still alive. <laughs> While encouraging his audience to continue believing the Bible. Which, according to him, speaks the truth about Miranda. Quote, he says this, his days will not, will not end. He is here to reign Govern, and pretty soon he will bring change to all nations. We're all waiting for the word of the scriptures to become a reality because as the church, we will be transformed and be made like the glorious one whose days will never end. That's from one of his cult leaders. Miranda's cult leaders continue to deny his death because admitting it would bring negative repercussions to their organization They're keeping shut, Torres says, because they they want to continue fabricating lies while taking pieces of the Bible to impart their false doctrines onto their followers since they make money off them. They're just afraid to be embarrassed by admitting that his death, about his death, because the great transformation that they preach about is false. By the way, the last public appearance, the news article goes on to say, made by Miranda was in April 27th in a video where he appeared thinner and frail and he urged his followers to prepare for the great transformation while according to him, he will become immortal along with his followers. He was born, by the way, in Puerto Rico in 1946. Thousands, thousands of people follow this man. So elders are called to have biblical conviction. They're called to have be biblical obedient, to have biblical understanding, biblical exhortation, and to have the biblical courage to confront error when they see it. That all brings us to today's message. <laughs> You're going, what? Yeah. That was all supposed to happen last week. Ran out of time. So we're, we're, now we're starting a whole new message. Not really. Right? It's just a continuation. But I want to speak to you this morning about the role of guarding the flock of God. So important. 
You know, discernment will keep you from flirting dangerously with the enemy. And the enemy wants to destroy you. We need discernment. There's many wolves, beloved, in sheep's clothing, preying about on God's flock. And some are masters, masters at deception and disguise. They talk like Christians. They use the Bible. They seem like nice people. They're so loving. They'll draw you in. Remember Little Red Riding Hood? And then they'll eat you for dinner. Elders must guard the flock of God by being willing to refute false teachers and by correcting any believers who have followed false teaching. This isn't a, a pleasant task. It's just not. I mean, I would much rather, rather than being confrontive, rather than be, I'd, I'd much rather bring some positive little message here this morning. Everybody can feel, feel good and shake my hand at the door and say, oh, I just, that's a wonderful sermon. But you know what? If the world were free of all disease, we wouldn't need doctors. We wouldn't need hospitals. We could all live very happily in our lives. But unfortunately, we know the world isn't like that. And the church isn't like that either. Uh, if the spiritual world were free of spiritual errors, we wouldn't need elders and pastors to confront and correct these, these spiritual diseases. So how do we do this? Well, elders must guard the flock by refuting false teachers. First of all, by refuting false teachers. Paul tells us in the book of Titus, he's telling Titus that these men must be what? Silenced in verse 11. Uh, it, It may not be possible to stop these people from talking, but it is possible to stop them from spreading their errors within the church. Because when people are confronted with the truth and they learn the truth, they will more easily recognize the error. That includes setting a fence around any teacher's pulpit, whether it's here on Sunday morning or Bible study Wednesday night. Paul says that these men are dangerous because they're upsetting whole families. See, smaller groups often give false teachers a more convenient setting in which to spread their lies. Matter of fact, a lot of the cults today try to get a believer or a family to study the Bible. And they'll come to your house and teach you the Bible. They prey on an individual or on a family that maybe is not well taught. And you have to understand two things about false teaching. First of all, false teaching always, always damages people. It always damages people. There's a book called The Cruelty of Heresy. See, heresy is a cruel thing because it damages people's souls. It damages people's lives. A lot of people are putting up with heresies because they want to experience their Christian faith. They don't want to focus on the doctrines. See, that's, that's a false belief. I mean... Obviously, we have to experientially know God through Jesus Christ. 
But if our experiences are based on false doctrines, it's not the true Christ that we're experiencing. I'm sorry. Sound doctrine is essential. When you have the modern day charismatic movements pushing tongues on everybody, speaking in tongues and everything, and you see people from other religions doing the exact same thing. From religions that are not Christian. That should give you a little bit of pause (laughs) and say, wow, that's a little weird. Second, the greatest danger for false teaching always comes from within the church. It's not the people that are outside the church, it's the people that are within the church. And you know what? These false teachers always profess to know God. And a lot of them, they seem like nice people. But Satan is smart enough not to use men who look like, you know, the devil with a little pitchfork and, and, uh, you know, not going to do that. Nice false teachers have you over for a meal. They invite you to gatherings. Everyone makes you feel like you're part of the group. But when you stop and look at their teaching, it can be deadly. Our text reveals three ways that elders will refute false teachers. First of all, refute false teachers by teaching sound doctrine. Very basic. He says there in verse 9, exhort in sound doctrine. He goes on in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, but as far as you go, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. We don't want to have the impression that we're to downplay theology or doctrine. We're not. An elder, a teaching elder, must emphasize the true doctrines of the faith. Sound there means healthy. As I said earlier, it leads to healthy Christian growth, healthy maturity. You have these churches all over the map that are teaching experience-based theology. It's all experience. Boy, they got experience. They got all kinds of experiences going on. But unfortunately, their theology is about an eighth of an inch deep. It's not sound. Properly taught Bible prophecy even should lead us to fear the Lord and to holy living. Secondly, we need to refute the false teachers by exposing their false teaching. By exposing their false teaching. See, there's this common notion that says, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as, long as you're sincere and just believe something. <laughs> Beloved, that's nonsense. That's ridiculous. You can believe with all your might that you can jump from Pier 39 over to the island of Alcatraz. You know what? It ain't going to happen. I don't care how good a jumper you are. It's not going to happen. It's the same when it comes to spiritual truth. Certain things are spiritually true because the Word of God has revealed them to us. Other things are spiritually false because they come from Satan. They don't come from God. They come from the Father of lies. And Paul says that these false teachers have turned away from the truth, verse 14. It means that spiritual truth is knowable because they turned away from it. It is absolute. It's not vague. It's not just relative. We don't know exactly what the spiritual errors were of these false teachers in Crete. 
But we know that they were promoting three common errors. False teachers add works to salvation by grace, alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul refers to them there as those of the circumcision. It's a group of Jewish people who claim to be believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Savior, but they also insisted that you needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. Paul pointed them out. Paul and Barnabas had a great kind of talk with all these false teachers in Antioch, which led to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And basically they concluded whether you're Jew or Gentile, all are saved by grace through Christ, apart from keeping the ceremonial laws of Moses. But see, in spite of that decision, in spite of that authority with which they spoke, these zealous Jews continued to promote their lies. And they especially really irritated Paul in a lot of different ways. And Paul writes against them. Read through the book of Galatians. You can see there what he talks about them. And in verses 1, verses 6 to 9, Paul says, If anyone preaches another gospel referring basically to anything added to faith in Christ alone for salvation, that person is to be accursed. Satan is always introducing false teaching on the way of salvation as a way to deceive people. But Scripture is very clear that saving faith is not merely just intellectual assent to the facts of the gospel. That's not what it is. You can grab any unbeliever and say, do you believe this, this, and this? And then pray a little prayer with them and pat them on the back and say, hey, now you're a Christian. And send them on their merry way without them ever being converted. A prayer doesn't convert somebody. It can't. God can use a lot of different ways. But don't ever rely on the surety of of someone raising a hand or walking an aisle or some experience that they may have to confirm to them that now they're, they're in the faith. The people who teach that you can come to Jesus as Savior without acknowledging Him as Lord claim that if you say that repentance from sin is necessary for salvation or that somehow good works are an evidence of saving faith, you're adding works to your faith. That's just not true. The very nature of saving faith regenerates the heart. You become a new person. You're definitely going to see the works of God in your life afterwards. Scripture is clear that genuine saving faith includes repentance and it also includes a life of good works. But see, false teachers go to the other extreme and they begin to add all these human works to saving faith as a necessary condition for salvation. In addition to faith in Christ, false teachers say that, well, you must have somehow add your own good deeds to this, including water baptism. You have to be baptized in water to be saved, including witnesses, witnessing, including keeping the Sabbath including going to services or mass, whatever else they want to count as meriting your own salvation. But Paul's very clear that we are justified by faith in Christ apart from anything that we can contribute. 
We're fallen. We're dead. We can't even respond to the gospel without God's divine intervention in our lives. False teachers also not only add to salvation, but they, to the, the grace of God, they also, they do not focus on the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. They focus on things like verse 14 points out to us here, Jewish fables or Jewish myths. Even in 1 Timothy 1.4, false teachers paid attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, Paul writes, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by what? Faith. We're to center on God's word. We're to center on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every false cult from the first century onward has erred on the the person and the work of Christ. Some have said that he is God, but he's truly not human. Others have said that he's human, but he's truly not God. Others have said that, well, he's some kind of hybrid God-man. Many have said that he's just simply our our great teacher, our example. But they have denied the necessity of his shed blood as an atonement for our sins. See, all, all cults, all false teachers supplement the Bible with their own thinking, with their own writing, with their own traditions. And usually those traditions contradict what Scripture has already revealed. But because it's new truth something that God has revealed to them. It supersedes Scripture. Beloved, as Christians, I can't say this strong strong enough. We must believe in the Bible alone as our authoritative source of truth. You can tell me about your experiences all day long. You know what? I really don't care. Because unless it fits within the confines of Scripture, don't tell me about your experiences. It's ridiculous. All of Scripture centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the eternal God, who took on human flesh to die as a substitute for our sins on the cross. Thirdly, false teachers promote legalism, not God's grace. They promote legalism, not God's grace. Paul says here that these false teachers promote what? The commandments of who? Of men. Look at Colossians 2.20. That's another place where he... He talks about that. Well, what is, is this? What is this? This is legalism. This is what legalism is. You've heard people say, well, you're just being legalistic. Well, what does that mean? Legalism basically is this. It involves emphasizing certain non-essential external matters to the neglect of certain essential heart matters. It focuses on the outward conformity to a bunch of man-made rules that somebody came up with, rather than on the inward conformity to God's righteous commands of Scripture. And mark my word, legalism always appeals to the flesh. It did in the time of Jesus. It does today. It appeals to the flesh. It feeds on the, the, the pride of the human heart that thinks somehow that we can attain righteousness apart from being humbled before the cross. 
somehow there's some goodness in us. Legalists congratulate themselves for doing their religious duties. And they're self-righteously, they self-righteously condemn those who, who don't do those duties. The unfortunate thing is they, they do not judge the sin in their own heart. Nor do they seek to please God from their heart. And that's what verse 15 here is speaking about. It says, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But those, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. See, Paul does not mean here that if you think something is not sinful, it's okay. He's not saying that. Rather, he's referring to the the Jewish ceremonial and the dietary laws. See, these false teachers claim to be pure because they kept all these rules. But in God's sight, they were unclean because their minds and their consciousness were defiled. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 and Hebrews 10, 22 tells us only the blood of Christ, only the blood of Christ can cleanse our consciences so that we can truly serve Christ, serve God. That's what Paul is, is saying in Mark where he is making the same point that Jesus made in Mark chapter 7, where he talked about the Pharisees, because they kept all these rules, all these regulations. But it says what? Their hearts were what? Far from God. Jesus said the external things, such as eating certain foods, could not defile a man, but rather what defiles is the sin that comes from the heart. The cult's, Today may not be into the the Jewish dietary laws, but invariably they're into legalism. They can teach that you can commend yourself to God by doing certain commandments. But they don't deal with the own defilement of the heart because they don't deal with the cross. Legalism and and licentiousness really are at, at the same focus. Grace is the balance point in the middle. See, they're, 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 legalism and licentiousness are really flip sides of the same coin. Both are rooted in the flesh, and neither one produces true godliness. That's why Jesus reproved the, the legalistic Pharisees in Matthew 23. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are what? Full of hypocrisy, he says, and lawlessness. See, these religious legalists were actually lawless in their hearts. But God's grace is opposed to the flesh because God's grace comes through the Holy Spirit. Titus 2, 11 to 14, when we look at that, that's what you're going to see. God's grace results in true holiness both inwardly and outwardly. So Paul shows us here that elders must refute teachers by teaching sound doctrine and exposing false doctrine. Also, refute teachers, false teachers, by exposing their sinful behavior. Mark it down. Bad doctrine always results in evil behavior. On the surface, they may look like nice, moral people. But you know what? The veneer of morality is mere legalism. 
Just as Jesus pointed out about the Pharisees, legalists actually look beautiful. They look like a whitewashed tomb. But on the inside, it says they're what? They're full of dead, dead men's bones and all uncleanness. He describes these false teachers, first of all, as being rebellious. And that's always the, the root of false teaching. They want to rebel. They want to be argumentative. Sinners refuse to submit to the authority of God's word, so they invent a teaching that fits their own sinful lifestyles. Verse 10, it says, They were empty talkers and deceivers, like a dishonest car salesman. They could talk real well, but as soon as you bought that car and drove it off the lot, man, you realize you got taken advantage of. Verse 11 says, These men were greedy. False teachers often exploit their followers, milking them for money while the false teacher goes first class everywhere he goes in his own private jet. Verse 12, they're liars, they're evil beasts, they're lazy gluttons. That's, we don't need to say anything about that. It kind of describes itself. 15 and 16, they're defiled, they're unbelieving, detestable. That word detestable, you know what that word means? It means to stink. It means to stink. They're disobedient, they're worthless for any good deed. See, false teachers are not usually so honest as to say that they are atheists or they're antichrists. Rather, in verse 16, it tells us what they say. They profess with their own lips that they know God, right? But their deeds, by their deeds, they deny him. First John makes it very clear. First John 2, 3, and 4. By this we will know that we have come to know him, what? If we, what? Keep his, what? commandments he goes on he says the one who says i have come to know him and doesn't keep his commandments he's a liar the truth is not in him jesus in matthew chapter 7 when we went through matthew we looked at this jesus said you can identify these wolves in sheep's clothing by their fruits so one of the unpleasant tasks of an elder or pastor is to guard the flock by refuting false teachers. But also, elders must guard the flock by correcting any believers who have followed false teaching. Sometimes you have to come alongside a brother or sister in Christ and say, hey, you know, you're reading a book that's not good. You're listening to somebody that's not going to feed your soul with truth. Many ways of doing that. First of all, correct by warning of cultural trends and tendencies. And that's what's so refreshing every year when we take a group of men down to the Shepherds Conference and we sit there and we, we hear what's going on, what's the newest trend in some erroneous doctrine? Who's teaching what? And how do we counter that? Paul cites here a Cretan poet who lived around 600 B.C. Calling him a prophet, Paul doesn't mean that he was a true prophet of God. He's basically saying that one whom they recognized as their own prophet denounced them. So he strengthens his, his point by quoting this Cretan against the Cretans. It kind of creates a paradox. Terry Lamar pointed this out to me, and it's interesting, but if all Cretans are liars... And a Cretan tells you that he's a liar. 
Is he lying? <laughs> See, Paul is, is making a tongue-in-cheek point here. He's saying that Cretans are generally liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. As their own prophet confirms. And so he's telling Titus that, you know what? Warn these Cretan believers about their, their, their cultural uh, desires toward these sins. Mark them out as false teachers so they don't blindly fall into the same thing. You stop and think, what would Paul warn us about in our culture? There's a lot of different things. And secondly, we need to correct by convincing strongly of the importance and narrowness of the truth. The truth is narrow, beloved. The way to Christ is narrow. It's not broad. Jesus himself said that. That's why Paul writes here in verse 13, but reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith. Them refers to the false teachers. Being sound in faith would, would, would point to believers. To reprove really means to convince someone of errors. Severely means just what it says, sharply. Cutting something off with a single blow of an axe. You don't be gracious about that, you just do it. Being sound means being spiritually healthy, as we've already discussed. It implies that you don't, if you don't correct these spiritual errors, somehow it's going to spread like gangrene. And the faith points that to that well-defined, narrow body of truth. We can know when others, or even ourselves, are in it. And we can know when others, or others, uh, ourselves, turn away from it. Very clear. We need to hold up the truth of the Word of God. We need to teach it. We need to preach it. We need to study it. We don't need to compromise it. Christopher Columbus was stranded in Jamaica. I'll close with this. And he needed some supplies. And he knew that there was going to be a lunar eclipse the next day. And so he told the local tribal chief, unless you give me these supplies... The God who protects me will punish you. And the moon will lose its light. Well, obviously, when the eclipse darkened the sky, Columbus got all the supplies he wanted. And in the early 1900s, an Englishman tried the same trick on a Sudanese chief. And the Englishman said, If you do not follow my orders... I can't do an English accent, so... Vengeance will fall upon you, and the moon will lose its sight. And he said, the chief replied, uh, if you're referring to the lunar eclipse, that doesn't happen until the day after tomorrow. See, the Sudanese chief was protected from deception because he knew the truth. That's the job of an elder. That's the job of a pastor. Protect the flock of God from deception by teaching God's truth and refuting the many erroneous false teachings of our day. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would help us to hold tightly to your word. 
the truth of the word of God. We thank you that we, we live in a country where we can have a personal copy of the, the literal divine revelation of the word of God to us. Help us to read it, to devour it, to study it, to meditate it, upon it as your word instructs us to do. Help us never to take it for granted. Lord, we ask that you would do a mighty work in the hearts of those gathered here this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would be gracious to those who have yet to put their faith and trust in you. Pray as we go out these doors, Lord, that we would realize we're entering a, a, a world that is lost and dying in sin. And that we have the remedy, we have the truth, we have the message of the gospel of Christ. It's the power unto salvation. Pray that we would preach it and teach it boldly. And that we would live lives that are honoring to you as we do it. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.